If you lived in the ancient Middle East, the overwhelming odds are you were a peasant, very likely a bonded servant to another family. Life was hard. Your life expectancy was low. There was famines, diseases, and wars. And the land you lived in would have been ruled by a king, the ultimate authority. That king would call himself the image of God. And that was a political theology. It let him rule the way he wanted to. But there was one family in the ancient Middle East, but a different story. They didn't have a king, not at first anyway, and they viewed everyone as equally valuable. They considered every human as the image of God. The biblical narrative is transparent as a kind of political theology, but it's one that elevates the common person to the status of the, of the king. Their story was of a God who wanted to rule with all of them, and he wanted them to rule with wisdom and justice. All of these laws are about a covenantal marriage between God and every Israelite. So every Israelite has a royal obligation to the covenant. That's a brand new idea. I'm John Collins, and this is the Bible Project Podcast. We continue our conversation on the biblical law, and we're going to dive into the way that the ancient Jewish law codes pushed the boundaries for justice in our world. We're going to look at some of the most uncomfortable parts of Israel's ancient law code. The classic example is slavery. So slavery is not abolished. These laws in Israel are adopting a cultural framework and practice for the ancient Near Eastern neighbors, but there's a world of seismic shift happening on the worldview level that will sow the seeds of the abolishment of slavery happening in Deuteronomy. And so we need to just honor that. It doesn't do it the way we think it ought to be done in the modern world, but how presumptuous of us. Like think of what somebody a thousand years from now is gonna say about our use of whatever, fossil fuels or contemporary forms of slavery and debt. And in our discomfort, we're gonna find something really surprising. It helps you see these laws that feel like a moral embarrassment in the modern world, but to realize the ethical ideals. And we're now living in a culture built on the foundation of the ideals. What's most beautiful in Western society and its ideals are the Jewish Christian heritage. And of course, much of the horror of Western history is also wrapped up in an abuse of that heritage. But the problem isn't the ideals. <laughs> uh, it's stupid humans. And we're going to end the conversation talking about the ultimate purpose of the law. It's not even that you know good and evil, you know me. Your life is, becomes just a natural expression of what the commands were all about. And Ezekiel says it's by this God's spirit that replaces your heart, that compels you to follow the laws of the Torah. Let's just say it this way. The Torah is a new covenant document. This is why I don't like to use the word Old Testament anymore these days. It's because that is saying that these texts are somehow the Old Covenant. And that's precisely what they are not. They're a narrative about how humans perpetually fail. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. Okay, we're talking about how to read laws in the Bible, biblical law. Yeah. Uh, you'll find it in the first five books of the Bible. Yep. There's 600 some odd yes. laws. Yeah. Comprising of somewhere around, I don't know, 6 to 10% of the Bible. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and it is often the most difficult stuff to read. And we've been, this is our fourth episode in it. And in mm. the last couple episodes, we're talking about 
paradigms or perspectives to bring to the to biblical law or you're reading it that will really help you mm-hmm. um, understand uh, how to read it mm-hmm. and how it works with the entire story of the Bible. Mm. The first one we talked about was that uh, what we find in the Bible isn't some comprehensive law code. Mm-hmm. And even if we did have the mm. comprehensive ancient, yeah, an ancient Israelite, Israelite law code, law code yeah. what you would have there isn't what we think of yeah. as law code in yeah. that we come from a judicial society where the written law is the final authority. Yes, yeah, st- um, statutory law. Statutory law. Yeah. Even though that's seeking after a higher authority, what's written is what we go to. Yep. In this ancient culture, written law are really just illustrations. Yeah. And They're one way to express your ideals of justice. Yeah. So yeah. even if the Bible was a comprehensive yeah. <laughs> set of biblical yeah. codes, yeah. Uh, laws, we still shouldn't go to it and say, okay, now we have to just follow everything here. Yeah. Ancient ancient people never did that. The biblical authors didn't even treat the laws that way. The biblical way. authors didn't even treat yeah, the laws They that saw way. them as a source of divine wisdom, guiding God's people towards a divine ideal of justice. But so are the narratives, mm-hmm. and so are the Proverbs, and so are the Psalms, and yeah. so on. Yeah. The second perspective, which we talked about last episode, is that every... Every, all these laws could be categorized yeah. into smaller buckets, mm-hmm. themes, or mm-hmm. what did you call them? I just said there's a, a core, a handful of core ideals yeah. being expressed in different types of laws. Yeah. Yep. An ideal, yep. So we looked at those. It was a really cool conversation. Uh, but if you have those uploaded in your brain as these kind mm-hmm. of frameworks. Mm-hmm. Then when you get to a law, you can go, yeah. what is the ideal that this That's specific right. example, yeah. this specific yep. illustration of what these people <laughs> did yeah. in their time and place in history? That's right. Or, what, or I think to accept the claim of the divine and human partnership and making of the Bible yeah. inspiration is that God's revealing a higher calling yeah. for human existence mm-hmm. um, and these are these ancient laws are expressions of a higher ideal that all people of all time should strive for we looked at the calendar laws the sacrificial laws the purity laws civil laws and the criminal laws yeah and we talked yeah. about the ideals behind all of those yeah. which is such a cool conversation yeah I want to make videos about each of those <laughs> uh-huh. <clears throat> the third perspective third perspective. Um, about the biblical laws. Laws. This one's a little bit harder for an average reader of the Bible to do, but it's crucially important to know that somebody is doing this. <laughs> and that is reading. That somebody's thinking this that way. Somebody's thinking about this and helping others understand it, is that these laws are a part of an ancient Near Eastern cultural tradition. The laws embody ancient Near Eastern concepts of justice, mm-hmm. while at the same time, they are revolutionizing those concepts. Hmm. Yeah, there you go. So, for example, the classic example is slavery. Yeah. So slavery is not abolished. The abolishment of slavery was as imaginable as the abolishment of electricity in the <laughs> modern world. Or the ab- abolishment of fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's proving a pretty hard one to kick for us. Yeah. What the pattern that you see, however, is these laws in Israel are adopting a cultural framework and practice for the ancient Near Eastern neighbors, but there's a world of seismic shift Mm -hmm. happening on the worldview level Mm -hmm. that will sow the seeds 
for sure, mm. of the abolishment of slavery mm. happening in Deuteronomy. Mm. You can see the seed sown. And, no, and there wasn't an ancient culture that even thought to think about the nature of human <laughs> relationships <laughs> yeah. uh, in the way that Deuteronomy is doing. Mm. And so we need to just honor that, that it, it doesn't do it the way we think it ought to be done yeah. in the modern world. But how presumptuous of us. Like, think of what somebody a thousand years from now is going to say about mm-hmm. our use of whatever, yeah. fossil fuels or contemporary forms of slavery and yeah. and debt, our economic mm. system right. uh, enslaves a lot of people in debt to function well, mm-hmm. you, know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, we, uh, and yeah. we think it's fine. Yeah. So just don't be too just quick be to judge. Humble. Yeah. So the revolution, the, the moral ethical revolution, essentially what this... What you have, what somebody has to do is sit down and study ancient Babylonian law codes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the ones that are available to us, Assyrian law codes, Hittite law codes. Mm. Those are the majority. There's a, a couple dozen mm. that have been unearthed in the last hundred years. And then compare the 600 laws of the Torah to them mm-hmm. and make observations. Yeah. <laughs> that's essentially what you do. Yeah, that sounds like... Um, Doesn't that sound fun? <laughs> <laughs> You know what sounds fun is listening to what those people discovered. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so here's okay. So two books I want to recommend. One's a little more scholarly and intense, and then one's a little more popular. Uh, one's by a Jewish scholar named Joshua Berman hmm. called Created Equal, How the Bible Broke with Ancient Political Thought. Hmm. Um, one that's a little more on the popular level, meaning he's... Um, writing a little more accessible to a wider audience is a guy named Jeremiah Unterman called Justice for All, How the Jewish Bible Revolutionized Ethics. And what actually both of these scholars are doing is some original work, but mostly they're just summarizing generations of discovery and scholarship here. So here's just a few things that are very interesting that, again, they've reframed how I think about the laws. First of all, you remember how the laws in the Torah are in the narrative context of the covenant yeah. relationship. Right. Here's something interesting. Uh, in all of the ancient covenant documents that we have from ancient Near East, which are Hittite, Assyrian, and Babylonian, out of all of them, there are almost always between a king and another king. Mm. Covenant relationships. Covenant relationships. Mm. Some of them read very similar to the covenant texts in mm. the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. Covenant curses, mm. uh, agreements. If you listen, the word love is often used to show love mm. is a way of talking about covenant loyalty. Mm. It's an important word in Deuteronomy. Yeah. So this is Joshua Berman's point. He says, of the dozens and dozens of ancient covenant documents, they're all between a king and another king. Only one is between a king and a whole people group. Mm. So... On the whole, covenants are agreements that kings make with each other, mm. <laughs> independent of their people, on behalf of their people, but yeah. but independent. So the biblical story, however, depicts all of the laws as covenant terms between God and a whole people group. Mm. And it's represented as a marriage. Yeah. The phrase, I will be their God and they will be my people, is a variation that we find in the Song of Songs. Mm. I am my beloved and my mm. beloved is mine. Mm. So just think in... In a context where covenants are things that kings make with other kings. Mm. And then you read the Hebrew Bible and you see a divine king Mm -hmm. making a covenant with the people. The people. In that cultural context, the people go in the another king slot. Mm. Yeah. 
Kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests. Or in or Genesis 1. Kingdom the, of kings. Yeah, kingdom of kings, yeah. Or in Genesis 1, the image of God. Yeah. It's the same thing happening with the image of God. That's a royal title yeah. given to kings only in mm. Babylon and, and Egypt. it's given to... Here it's given to all of Israel. The populace. Yes. This is actually the a key point in Joshua Berman's whole book is to say the covenant terms, those, these laws are not just for the kings. These laws are for all of the people. All of the people are elevated to the role. The common Israelite is mm. elevated to the role of a royal covenant partner mm. with the king of the universe. Yeah. These laws elevate the average Israelite's sense of themselves and their value. Yeah. That's powerful stuff. It is powerful. But to us who like come from a culture where we have phrases like all men are qu- created equal. Ah, uh, yes. That it seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah, that's we, how it should be. Just take that for granted. Yes. We take that for granted. Yeah. And that's not how it always was thought. No. There would be no more ridiculous idea than all men are created than equal. Than all humans are created equal it, to say that to an ancient Egyptian king. Yeah. You'd be, be like, like, you'd be like, get out of here. Yeah. No, he would kill you on the spot. <laughs> I'll show you how equal you are. Totally. There's nothing in nature that mm, teaches you something like that. Right. And nothing in the history of human relationships yeah. prepares you for that. Yeah. I mean, it's this is revolutionary stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Here, uh, this is a quote from Joshua Berman. Uh, he says, in ancient Near East, various gods had consorts and goddess wives, while the common man was a subject, a slave and servant of the king and of the tribute-imposing class. Tribute-imposing uh Meaning that the majority of the lower class exists to serve Mm -hmm. and to pay tribute, monetary tribute. Got it. For these cultures, he continues, for these cultures to conceive of the marriage between a god and a group of humans, which is what the Israelite covenant is, that would have been as unthinkable as for us to imagine the marital union (laughs) of a human and a cat. Mm. (laughs) The marriage of a god and a whole people. Yeah. A covenant people. I mean, you see what he's saying here. Totally. The Bible's most revolutionary idea is the idea of God as a personality who seeks a relationship of mutuality with human agents. Mm. In the neighboring cultures of the ancient Near East, humans are slaves of the king. Mm. In the Bible, they are transformed into a servant king who's married to a generous sovereign, a wife in relation to her benefactor husband. When God seeks love from Israel... It involves the political sense of loyalty between parties, as well as a kind of intimacy known and faithful, intimate relationship between a man and a woman. Hmm. I mean, just try to imagine when this was a brand new idea. Yeah. (laughs) Right. You live in a society where you have a very small elite ruling class. Yeah. The king being the highest of those who finds his authority as that like a god. And everyone else mm-hmm. exists to yeah. pay tribute S- ser- to serve. Yeah. and serve that king. And your cultural mythology, like Babylonian mm. creation story, reinforces that. is that the gods got tired of feeding themselves, <laughs> so they murder one of their own, they slit the throat, pour his blood into the dust, and make humans to be slaves. Oh, so, so they your, could feed them. In your cultural mythology... Everybody is slaves except those who are related to the divine, which, oh, happens to be the king who's an image of God and those in his family. So wait, so the mythology is the gods got lazy and violent 
and and so made and, human to slaves. And so made human to slaves. Yeah, that's that's the Babylonian creation story yeah. called the Atrahasis. Mm. So you can it's a transparent as a political yeah, ide- ideology. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it also helps us see that the biblical narrative is transparent as a kind of political yeah. theology they were, yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. But it's one that elevates the common person to the mm. status of the of the king. Right. To have called humanity the image of God mm-hmm. when only the king That's right. gets that status yeah. would have been yeah. revolutionary. And to tell a narrative where all of these laws are about a covenantal marriage between God and every Israelite. Mm. So every Israelite has a royal obligation to the covenant. Mm. That's a brand new idea. Mm. <laughs> it's just, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. This also explains why in Israel's law codes, the priests and the kings are extremely downgraded compared to their Canaanite mm. neighbors mm. and Egyptian and Babylonian. I mean, the kings are embodiments of the gods. Yeah. The priests um, wear the clothing of the gods. They dress up like gods mm. and, and such. Um, in the only law about the king in Deuteronomy says... Yeah, don't... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't amass all this wealth. Yeah. Don't have all these wives from other No standing countries. army. Yeah. Yeah. Be a Bible nerd. Yeah. Study the Bible. Study the Bible. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The priests are given extremely narrow range of authority. Important. Yeah. But extremely narrow. They can't even own land. Mm. Priests can't own land in ancient yeah. Israel. <laughs> right. Right? And that's how you gain wealth, wealth and influence and power. And power. Yeah. yeah. So think, this is an active turning upside down of an ancient oh, Near Eastern culture yeah, to wow. downgrade kings, subservient yeah. to the covenant, and to downgrade priests. <laughs> Man, we had some iconoclasts writing biblical law. Oh, Totally. Their whole economy is aimed at achieving a level of social equality that was unheard of. Mm. This is the the laws about debt release every seven years, mm-hmm. slaves being freed every mm. seven years, no interest loans. Mm. It's against the law to charge interest on loans in ancient Israel. <laughs> yeah, like our society couldn't exist yeah. without law. <laughs> yeah, totally. So yeah, uh, here's Berman again. We can, I just, this, this is so helpful for me. Here's what it does. It helps you see these laws that feel like a moral embarrassment in the mm. modern world. Yeah. But to realize the ethical ideals. In their context were yeah. just revolutionary a, a moral revolution. And we're now living in a culture thousands of years. That benefited from that moral revolution. Built on the foundation of the ideals mm. underneath these laws. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So look here. Here Berman is talking about the economic equality created by the jubilee and the debt release and so on okay he says the biblical laws about land and assets introduce a reformation of the ancient worldview aimed at achieving social equality but he says it's interesting it's not the egalitarianism developed since the french revolution Hmm. (laughs) with its emphasis on individual and inalienable human rights 
Rather, it takes the form of an economic system that seeks equality by granting sacred value to the extended family household, where people assist one another in farming labor, in granting... Uh, here he's talking about leaving the edges of your mm -hmm. field for the immigrants. The other relief to other households. In mm -hmm. yeah. Yep, granting relief to other households. So think, ancient Israel's a tribal association of free farmers and ranchers, <laughs> in our modern terms. Yeah. Living in a single, equal social class with all common ownership of the means of the production, land. This system was a rejection of statism, that is, that the nation state owns all the land. Mm. And it's a rejection of feudalism, Mm. which is military lords own all the land. Mm -hmm. And those two systems summarize the ancient and medieval mm. human history. Yeah. Right? And also, this whole society is free of tribute to any human king. Mm. And their tribute was a shared burden of funding the temple, not yeah. a king. So Israel defined itself in opposition to the empire of oppression embodied by Egyptian slavery, but also in opposition to centralized monarchies. And eventually, the monarchy takes up residence in Israel. So think about this. This is in the narratives of the book of Samuel and Kings. Yeah. The monarchy is an institution born out of deep compromise. Yeah. And that only ruins the covenant. Yeah. They weren't mm. supposed to have a king. They have one. <laughs> yeah. Who liberated them from slavery in Egypt. Yeah. God's their king. So just think about how that narrative reads in its original context 2,500 years ago. It's a whole narrative critiquing human monarchies mm. when human monarchies are the only yeah. thing that humans have ever known. And the most <laughs> powerful things on the planet. Totally. Yeah. This is remarkable stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. This stuff is very, this at least been really helpful for me. Yeah. There's a moral, ethical revolution that without which the concept of human rights, yeah. the concept of welfare, Mm. social equality. These are biblical concepts mm. that our modern They era came has into inherited. human history yes. via yes, that's right. this revolution. Via this revolution. Ethical monotheism is how some people would describe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and this would have been screaming out loud and clear to An yeah. ancient yeah. people reading this. Totally. To us, it's completely yeah. buried. Yeah. Because we've we actually separated it from even a religious worldview. We separated what? We separated these concepts oh. from their religious We think the concepts heritage. come yeah. from, I don't even think we think about where they come from. No, yeah. We just take them for granted. Yeah. And then if you don't see them as clearly as you'd want to see them in the Bible, yeah. you think the Bible actually is fighting against them. Correct. Versus yeah. the seedbed yeah. of the revolution. Yeah. And I, this is you know right up to our current moment but when you see a culture that wants to highlight equality uh -huh. and justice for all mm -hmm. but separate it from the religious narrative that makes that reasonable yeah you have a living contradiction that is the west <laughs> yeah that wants to live by these jewish christian ideals but separate them from any of their jewish christian heritage yeah and it remains to be seen whether a culture can actually sustain those ideals mm. without the religious worldview underneath it. Right. Because there's nothing in nature that says human kingdoms ought to no. seek equality. <laughs> no. Yeah. If anything, you would argue that it will be a slow regress back into what is a more natural state. Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't, <laughs> I don't think humans will put up with that. I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. Yeah. But uh, we live in a crazy world. I, I don't know, it's just, it's a fascinating moment in the history of the West 
that it's both simultaneously rejecting much of its religious heritage, but wanting to maintain its ethical ideals of justice for all. I wonder what a guy like Sam Harris would say about that. Well, it's a good question. Well, actually, we know exactly what he would say. What would he say? Oh, what he would say is um, those ideals aren't the sole property of the Jewish Christian tradition. They're what reasonable people would come to, and secular, reasonable society can carry forward those ideals. Mm -hmm. That is his claim and, and others like him. And the deep contradiction in that point of view has been pointed out to them. It's a different, they just have a different view of the universe. Yeah. (laughs) This is where... A lot of optimism about our rationality. Totally. That's right. This is where, for me, the work of David Bentley Hart has been very helpful to me. He's helping Westerners wake up from our almost willful amnesia (laughs) that what's most beautiful in Western society and its ideals are the Jewish Christian heritage. Mm. And, of course, much of the horror of Western history is also wrapped up in an abuse of that heritage. But the the problem isn't the ideals. (laughs) Uh, It's stupid humans. Break down the example I think I've heard you teach on, and you mentioned this law in the last episode of, of when you take a, a woman's slave, you shave her head. Oh, and cut yeah, her nails yeah, and yeah, stuff. yeah. That's right. And it sounds very demeaning. Yeah. But, uh, but in its ancient context is actually yeah. um, part of the revolution. Yep. This one bothered me for a long time. <laughs> uh, Deuteronomy 21, verse 10. When you go to battle against your enemies... And the Lord your God delivers them into your hands. And you see, actually, this is all, this language is all keyed into the design pattern of Genesis, oh, yeah, Genesis 3. When you see a woman beautiful of sight. Yeah. It's exactly the phrase, and the woman saw that the tree was beautiful of sight oh, wow. in Genesis 3. Crazy. And you see among the captives a woman beautiful of sight, and you desire her. Mm, desire, keyword. And take her wow. for yourself as a wife. Then bring her home. For new listeners. Yes. That's a design pattern. Yeah. In that, that's exact same language. Totally. Uh, that you find in the that's right. Genesis that's story actually, with yeah. Adam and Eve and the fruit. Correct. And then repeated in all Correct. sorts of stories. So the point would be, some people might mistake this law as promoting this. Right. But that design pattern, describing a soldier <clears throat> seeing what's beautiful, desiring it, taking it for himself. Yeah. That whole sentence is modeled after yeah. of the humans the human fall. taking from the tree in Genesis 3, which means that's an author giving you a clue that stupid, lustful soldiers yeah. taking women, right. they're going to do it. Yeah. So if they're going to do it, let's at least regulate it and make it hum- as humane as possible. Mm. That's what's going on. It's painting this activity negatively, not endorsing it. So here's what you do. You take her home, you shave her head, trim her nails, remove the clothes of her captivity, let her mourn her father and mother a whole month. After that, you may become her husband and she shall be your wife. If you're not pleased with her, you shall let her go wherever she wants. You cannot sell her for money. You cannot mistreat her. So on one reading, this is like... Like, man... Terrible. You're out in battle. Yeah. You take this woman. Yeah. Shave her head. Yeah. And then you make her be your wife. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're not happy with it, you just get rid of her. Yep. That's right. Yeah. 
It's disgusting. It is. Feels disgusting. Yeah. I agree. And that's a Jewish Christian moral conscience. Yeah. That thinks behavior like that is disgusting. Mm-hmm. Aside from that religious worldview, this is normal human behavior for mm-hmm. most of human history. Yeah. And the biblical author agrees. That's why he's painted this scene with the colors of Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. Taking this woman is just like humans taking from the tree yeah. in the garden. However, so here's ways that I think this law is introducing the revolution mm-hmm. into, into this. One is um, you give her a month where you can't touch her. Mm. Yeah, that's some self-control for a soldier. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, th- you know how these stories go. Yeah. Sexual abuse when it comes to, to war crimes yeah. is horrific. Yeah. An Israelite soldier, you respect her, you bring her home, and you don't touch her yeah. for a month. Wow. And you let her grieve her loss. And then, if you marry her, and then all of a sudden don't want to be married to her anymore, you don't get to sell her as a slave. Yeah, she's not your property. She's not your property, and yeah. she never was. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, this is pretty revolutionary stuff. And so it's a good example of a divine ideal being introduced into a really bad situation. Mm. And it's and working the, the revolution. The yeah, it's working the revolution from within. Yeah. You can see a Solomon, a wise figure, saying, you know what? We should just not allow this altogether. Right. Like you could, that's a takeaway. Get away. to the point where you're like, yeah. yeah, don't take women in battle. Correct. And then you can see a wise mm-hmm. Solomon yeah. centuries from then or yeah, millennium they're going, right. hey, let's not go into battle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's keep going. All right. Previous three points have been about the laws in, in the Old Testament in their ancient cultural context. Yeah. They're not a law code, but covenant terms mm. and a source of wisdom mm-hmm. about moral ideals. The laws embody a set, a set of theological ideals mm-hmm. underneath all of them. Yeah. That was the second point. The third one is they're part of an ancient ethical revolution yeah. that God's introducing into human history. This fourth point is more about reading the Torah as a narrative and understanding how divine commands fit into the plot line in the narrative plot line. Okay. Because those 611 laws mm-hmm. all come with Passover and Mount Sinai and on in the story. Mm-hmm. But they're not the first divine commands. Mm. God has given a few com- commands already. Yeah. In fact, one is on page two. <laughs> In other words, the theme of the divine command and a human being tested as to whether they will obey the command. Yeah. That's the Garden of Eden story. Right. And so it's important to see the laws that are given to the people of Israel play a subordinate role in the biblical storyline mm. that leads to Jesus. They're just one moment of a bigger pattern in the plot line of the story, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. So it just helps to see them that way. There's a story happening. There's, yeah. Uh, it begins with creation, God bringing order from chaos 
and it ends with new creation. Mm-hmm. And the laws play a role in that story, yeah. which is the paradigm of they're not put in there so that you can have a sampler of law code. So at least you have some things to, to live by. Live by. <laughs> yeah, totally. They're yeah. there to play a role in this story. Correct. And what yeah. is the role that they have in the story? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's look at the first divine command given in the Bible. Yeah. God calls Don't eat apples. a beautiful garden out of nothingness, creates a wonderful mountain garden temple, appoints the humans as his images to rule it and enjoy it. And he gives them one command, and it's the word command, tziva mm. uh, in Hebrew. The Lord God commanded the human, saying... Because there's no Hebrew word for law. Is uh, that what you said before? Oh, not quite in the concept that we have it. Oh, okay. Yeah, command would just be, it's the thing that I'm telling you to do. Yeah, <laughs> do it. Here's the command. Eat from any tree. All the trees of the garden are yours to eat. That's a great command. It's a great command. <laughs> but from the tree of knowing good and evil, do not eat because, warning, it will kill you. In the day that you eat from it, you'll die. Yeah. So that's the first command. Mm-hmm. So enjoy God's good world, but the authority of knowing, discerning on your own what is good and not good, don't take that. It will result in death. And this isn't included in the list of 611 or 613 it's not, it's because not. it's not part of the marriage covenant between of Israel God, yep, and God. Between God and Israel. Yep, that's okay. right. But in terms of the thematic structure of the biblical story, here it's, we are. It's number one. God gave you a gift. Enjoy it. Just here's one thing. It's the one and only command, I guess. It's the only command. Yeah, yeah that's right. So obviously they break the command. <clears throat> and when God comes to... He addresses the snake and then the woman and the man individually mm. in Genesis chapter 3. And to the man, what he says is, because you have listened to the voice of your wife mm. and you've eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, yeah. don't eat it. Yeah. You know, it's essentially you'll work the land and it will be hard to mm. work the land and yeah. you'll return to the dust from what you made. Yeah. So it's all about listening. Mm. You listen to the voice of another human Instead of listening to my voice. So right here in this story, listening to the voice of God is synonymous with obeying obeying the divine command. So what's the problem? The problem is humans don't listen to the voice of God and obey his commands. They listen to each other's voices, Mm. which spin narratives. Which is being influenced by the voice of a greater evil. That's right. By a lie. Yeah, Yeah. Of a greater force of evil. So the fundamental biblical plot conflict then is about humans not obeying the divine command, failing the test. Yeah. It's about a test of listening, listening mm-hmm. test. So that sets up the core pattern of divine commands, the test, and human failure to not listen. Yeah. So, and that phrase, listening to the voice, is really key, key within it. So you walk away from that story going, oh, man, okay, well, what we need are some humans who will listen to the voice of God. Mm-hmm. That'd be nice. That'd be great. Abraham is called out of the scattering of Babylon, and God speaks to him Mm. a poem in the beginning of Genesis 12 that actually, uh, I don't have this in the notes, but it systematically goes through and addresses all of the poems from Genesis 1 to 11 and reverses them, turns the cursing into Mm. a bless, a Mm. bless. It's really cool how it works. But the one condition is leave your land and leave your family. Mm. It's like separating you from your old humanity mm. 
a new and different kind of human, leave your family behind. Mm. And we're told Abraham leaves the land, and then we're told, mm-hmm. and Lot, his nephew, went with him. Mm. Yeah, so he didn't leave all his family. He didn't leave. He left his land, but he did he fully listen? Mm. So you're supposed to clue in right there, like, yeah, he didn't listen to the whole command. He didn't listen to the whole command. That's all the narrator says. It's just this, the last little line, and Lot went with him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you're like, wait, what? He's supposed to go by himself. He's supposed to go, just he and his wife. So, and the narrator's way of showing you the results of that, Mm. not listening, is Lot becomes the source of innumerable problems Mm. in the narratives to follow. Mm. So he doesn't fully listen. And it's not the first time. Um, In the story about Hagar, their Egyptian slave, Mm -hmm. God said, I'm going to give you a family and a great nation. And Sarah and Abraham get impatient. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they decide to, in their own wisdom, yeah. create a family. Yeah. And it's another design pattern of Genesis yeah, he takes, 3. He takes her. He yeah. Sees, yeah. Yeah. They see Hagar take her and do what is good in their eyes yeah. to her. Hmm. Oh, and specifically in that story, it says that Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. Oh, wow. Which is exactly the phrase, phrase. from Genesis 3. Yeah. And you're like, oh, no. Here we go. Here we go. It's another Genesis 3. Yeah. And it totally, it's a huge mess mm. that comes from that situation. So now um, Abraham and Sarah have done great evil in trying to fulfill the divine promise mm. in their own wisdom. Yeah. They abuse an Egyptian woman. Uh, you know, he sleeps with her. Yeah. trying to get his own heir out of it. Then he has to downgrade her son. It's just a terrible situation. Yeah, and it creates all, all these problems. creates all these problems, uh, broken relationships, and it's all based off of their own fall, their own failure to obey the divine command. Mm. And so when Abraham and Sarah finally do get a son, you know, they've done terrible things to other people yeah. to get this son. Yeah. And so what God asks is... He puts Abraham to the test, another yeah. test. Yeah, a big one. A big one. This is Genesis 22. And all, dude, all the language of Genesis 22 is riffing in creative ways off of the language of Genesis 3. This is Abraham's tree in the garden moment. Mm. And so uh, the whole point. And Genesis 22 is where God asks Abraham yes. to sacrifice. Well, well so. the narrator says God tested Abraham. Mm. So you know this is a test. Okay. But what God tests is... Just how far are you willing to go to have a, have your own son? Mm. You've been willing to abuse yeah. an Egyptian slave and disenfranchise her son to do it. So um, the whole thing is about whether he's he listened to the voice of Sarah. That's what got him into this mess. Mm. So he does it. He's about to offer up Isaac as an ola, mm. a going up offering yeah. on his behalf. And then God which you, the reader, knew was had to happen. <laughs> At some point, God says, stop. Yeah. And then here's what, here's what happens. In Genesis 22, verse 16, God says, By myself I have sworn, because you've done this thing, you haven't withheld your son, your only one. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I'll multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand and the seashore. Your seed will possess the gate of your enemies and your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Let's pause. That's the fulfillment. It's a restatement of what God said in the first place. Yeah. Right. Back in 12. So God said earlier, I'm going to do these things for you. Mm -hmm. And Lot went with him. 
Yeah. <laughs> you're and, like, oh. Yeah. And then he listened to the voice of his wife. Yeah. And you're like, ah. Oh. And so here, this story is Abraham's, he passes the test. Mm. He's the only character in the Bible that does this. Oh, he's the only character up to this point. Up to this point. Who passes the test. Yeah. And when he passes, when a human passes the test, it releases blessing to the nations. Mm. And then the last line is, because you have listened to my voice. Mm. Because you listen to my voice. Mm. So watch this. Four chapters later, God is, Abraham just died. And Abraham's son, Isaac, whose life exists because of the mercy of God, Mm-hmm. <laughs> right yeah. after Genesis 22 and a miracle of God and a miracle Genesis 26 God's restating the promise to Isaac he says I'm going to establish the oath that I swore to your father Abraham I'll multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens I'll give your descendants these lands by your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed and you're like oh yeah that's what God said to Abraham Yep. because Abraham listened to my voice and kept my charge my commandments my statutes, and my Torah. (laughs) And you're like, wait, the commandments and statutes and the Torah. They didn't exist. They don't exist yet. Yeah. Are you with me? Yes. But you're reading this in a story where you're just 30 or so pages away from the revelation of the laws. Where you're going to get them. Yeah. So this is very important. The, The story of the garden and Abraham and Abraham listening to God's voice is equivalent to keeping the laws of the Torah. Hmm. And that is the narrative hmm. that's set in f- as the introduction to the covenant story of God and Israel and the laws at Sinai. Doesn't Paul kind of refer to this where he said Abraham, mm-hmm. does he have a phrase where like he had it written on his heart? Like he like... Hmm. Well, yeah, we'll read him. Yeah, we'll read this later. Okay. Yeah, Paul's whole point is the Torah is trying to teach you about the life of faith. Yeah, and that's what Abraham was doing. The life of Abraham, and all he's, all, what Paul's cluing into, sorry, let's back up. Most people, when they read the first five books of the Bible, they think, oh, look at all these laws. Yeah. The Old Testament is about how God wants you to obey laws. Mm-hmm. The New Testament is about how God wants you to live by faith. Yeah. And that's exactly the opposite point that <laughs> Jesus and Paul have. Of yeah, and Yeah, and that Genesis is making here. Yeah. When it introduces Abraham as the first one Who to listened, follow the Torah by listening to God's voice and living yeah. by faith. Yeah. To live by faith is to obey the commands of the Torah without even knowing them. They haven't even been revealed yet. Mm. In other words, this is kind of a little narrative. The narrator is winking at you when he mm. says, Abraham kept my charge, my commands, my statutes, and the laws of the Torah. Mm. He's winking at you because mm. he knows he's going to tell you a story continuing on about people who actually get very clear statements of the laws and statutes and commands and they've been rescued from slavery in Egypt Mm -hmm. and they don't listen to the voice Mm. but their forefather did that's interesting yeah it is So this theme continues on. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, here, let's just get to it. When you get to Mount Sinai, mm-hmm. when the people of Israel are sitting at Mount Sinai, and this is the prologue to the law, the first laws, the prologue to the Ten Commandments. Hmm. And when the Israelites are at Mount Sinai, 
God says, you saw what I did to the Egyptians. I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will, in Hebrew it's repeated twice, if you will listen, listen to my voice, (laughs) which is synonymous, he says, by keeping my covenant. Mm. To listen to the voice is to keep the covenant. Then you'll be my own possession among the nations. You'll be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You get a narrative of the laws of the covenant. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the first narrative after that is the making of the golden calf. <laughs> mm, yeah, a foreign <laughs> god Yeah, that they want to worship. Yeah, and that golden calf story, all the vocabulary in that story is patterned after the fall narrative in Genesis chapter 3. Mm, here we go again. Here we go again. So you can just see the narrative argument mm. of the Torah is about how humans don't listen. But there was one moment when Abraham did, mm. and that act of obedience was an act of faith that released blessing to the nations. And it was in that act, Abraham, it was as if he was obeying all the laws of the Torah in mm. one in one act. It is possible. It is possible. But Abraham is has one moment of success among a lifetime of failures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it gives you a category of like, oh, okay. So a human mm. who always and only listens to the voice of God that's what we need around here mm-hmm. so that blessing can permanently be released to all of the nations. All right. Maybe it's the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. Oh, wait, no. They just do the same thing they everybody made, else does. They made the golden calf. Yeah, totally. So here, let's just summarize this. Um, here, I'll let you read. This is a paragraph from Deuteronomy 30, Okay, which summarizes this point well. Deuteronomy thirty fifteen. See, I've set before you today life and good and death and evil. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments. See, that, that's what Abraham obeyed, that mm, list Those right are there. the same list. Okay. Yep, yep. That you may have life and multiply, which is what God wanted mm-hmm. them to do. Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve, multiply. In the garden. Yep. And that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, which is the same word for listen, right? Mm -hmm. You will not listen to the voice, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you surely shall perish. That's exactly it. Don't eat of the tree. Mm, The day that you eat of it, you'll die. Mm. This is the same thing. Mm. Same pattern. You will not prolong your days in the land when you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you Life and death, the blessing and the curse. Yep. So choose a life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, yeah. and by holding fast to him. Remember, listening to his voice. That's the phrase. That's the phrase. It's the word Shema. To his voice. Yeah. Shema, Shema his voice. voice. Yeah. Yeah. This is your life. Your life is listening to the voice. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so connected to living by the Spirit. Yes. To- oh, totally. Yeah, that's right. In fact, that's where this goes in, in Je- the book of Jeremiah and in the book of Ezekiel. Mm. When the people are sitting in exile after having for 400 years not listened to the voice, mm. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the only thing they can imagine mm. of how this is solved is in Jeremiah's words of God writing the laws of the Torah on the heart. Mm-hmm. So that everyone knows me. Mm. 
So it's not even that you know good and evil, you know me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Ezekiel says, yeah. It's embodied you need... by, the, yeah. by yeah. the law. Your life is, becomes just a natural expression of what the commands were all about. Mm. And Ezekiel says it's by this God's spirit that replaces your heart, that compels you to follow the laws of the Torah. Mm. So here, let's just say it this way. The Torah is a new covenant document. This is why I don't like to use the word Old Testament Mm. anymore these days. Mm -hmm. It's because that is saying that these texts are somehow the Old Covenant. Right. (laughs) And that's precisely what they are not. Mm. They're a narrative about how humans perpetually fail to listen to the voice. And that's always been the covenant, to listen to the voice. The covenant is to listen to the voice, which means that you can have Abraham... There isn't, there isn't an old covenant of obey laws and now a new covenant of listen to the voice of God through the Spirit. Yeah. There is... Just always been just always the test been of that. listen to the voice. Mm. And wow. a series of covenants. One of them has 611 examples of how to listen to the voice. Yeah. <laughs> but it's couched in a narrative of how they failed to do it, creating a need, as Moses says, for the, the transformation of the heart. So the whole Old Testament is a new covenant document in that it create, shows you why we need fundamentally different kind of divine human relationship, hmm. which is what the incarnation of Jesus and the work of the Spirit is all about. So this is what I mean, the laws at Mount Sinai. This makes me want to read some of Paul and Romans or something right now just to kind of connect oh. those dots. Well, great. Uh, I have them on the next page. Oh. <laughs> but is it part of the next point? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Well, then we'll do that in the next episode. Great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bible Project Podcast. We've got two more episodes about reading the law. But next week, we want to stop and answer some questions from you. I'm sure a lot of things have come up for you as you've been listening through these conversations. So if you have a question, you could send it to us. Send it to info at jointhebibleproject.com. We'd love to use your voice. So record yourself asking the question. Please keep it to around 20 seconds and let us know your name, where you're from, and we'll get to as many as we can. Today's episode was produced by Dan Gummel. The theme music is by the band Tense. The Bible Project is a nonprofit. We're in Portland, Oregon. We believe the Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. We make free resources that show the literary structure of the Bible and the themes that carve their way through the entire biblical narrative. We're a crowdfunded organization, so this is all made possible by people like you. So thanks for being a part of this with us. Hi, my name is Maciel Davila-Ferrer. I'm from Lacombe, Alberta, Canada. I first heard about the Bible Project, I think about four years ago, from a fellow pastor. And he told me about the materials, and now I use them for, like, everything. I use them with students when I do one-on-one Bible studies. I for sure always use them for my sermon prep. It makes me sound really smart, like I did a lot of research by myself. And my favorite thing about it is that it's just so rich, so inspirational, and just, like, It's just all about the Bible, and I think that transcends any separations that we have. We believe the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. We're a crowdfunded project by people like me. Find free videos, study notes, podcasts, and more at thebibleproject.com. 